This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians. We've made our way up into the sixth chapter, to the beginning of the sixth chapter. But we're going to have to back up a little bit into chapter 5 to to make the connection between uh, uh, what has been said before and what Paul is uh, now beginning to say in chapter 6. In chapter 5, in verse, uh, um, well, really in verse 18, Paul starts and and uh, uh, is talking about. We've we've discussed this before. I guess I need to start here. We discussed this before. the The book of Ephesians is a an overall big picture book. In other words, he's not writing to the church at Ephesus trying to fix a problem. Uh, this is a letter that was uh, um, apparently intended to be distributed among a number of churches. The um, uh, where the uh, the beginning of chapter one says to the church at Ephesus. Um, the place where of Ephesus is written in, it's handwritten in the original documents that we have record of. There was a blank there, which is an indication that uh, Paul intended this to go from church to church to church, be passed around and be a personal letter to each and every one of the churches because it's, a, it's, a, um, uh, it's instruction, it's doctrine, it's teaching about who the church should be in the world. And so he starts off in the first three chapters talking about who we are in Christ and the the position that we have because of Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection power. But then the last three chapters are how to live in this world. So he's made his way in chapter 5 and verse 18. He says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, even though this letter is intended to be passed around from church to church or copied and, and distributed to different churches, whichever the case may be, we know something about the church at Ephesus, how they started off with uh, Paul ministering to them, actually found certain disciples uh, at a certain place, and he thought they were saved. And he asked if they received the Holy Ghost, and they said, we've never heard of the Holy Ghost. So then he has to dig a little further, and he says, well, then under, under what are you baptized? They're living their lives in such a way that they seem to be separated unto God, so he assumed that they're saved. He assumed, they, uh, Paul assumes that they've heard about Jesus. And made him the Lord, made him the Lord of their lives, and so they said that they've never heard of the Holy Ghost. So he knows that they haven't heard of Jesus. So he says, "Under what then are you baptized?" And they said, "Well, under John's baptism." John preached of Jesus to come, but they've never heard that Jesus came, lived on the earth, and was uh, crucified and raised from the dead. So he preaches Jesus to them, tells them about Jesus, and then he prays for them, and the Holy Ghost descends on them, and they speak with tongues and they prophesy. Therefore, Paul cannot be talking about. In verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. He cannot mean receive the Holy Ghost or the infilling of the Holy Ghost or the baptism of the Holy Ghost or whatever terminology you want to put on it. That can't be what he's talking about because they already have. Well, then what is he talking about? He's talking about living a life. Remember, these are practical application chapters. He's talking about living a life that's affected and influenced by the Holy Ghost who's baptized you, which means you don't have to. Which means, in other words, you can be filled with the Spirit. You can speak with other tongues and not live this Spirit-filled life that he's referring to. And a lot of charismatics do that. Well, a lot of times people think that being filled with the Holy Ghost and with the evidence of speaking in other tongues is the end of everything. Folks, it's the beginning of everything. It's not the end of everything. 
It's the beginning of everything so that the Holy Ghost can influence every aspect of your life. And this is what Paul is talking about where he says, be filled with the Holy be filled with the Spirit. It's a play on words that literally says in the original translation, it would, uh, a literal translation would read, be being filled with the Spirit. In other words, stay full. Live your life in such a way that you stay full. Now, how do you do that? He mentions three things, three characteristics. Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice the first thing that he says that a spirit-filled life does, it creates a change in your speech. Not just speaking in tongues, but your life becomes a life of praise. Your first inclination when you're influenced and directed by the Holy Ghost is that the words that come out of your mouth are not words of complaint, not words of griping, not looking for all the problems that you have and, oh, woe is me, what are we going to do? But your first inclination in living a spirit-filled life is speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, praising God in the midst of whatever trouble you might find yourself in. The second thing he mentions is in verse 20. He says, giving thanks. Thanksgiving and praise must be two different things. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he referring to? He said a spirit-filled life focuses on two aspects of magnifying God in your life. But that's what a spirit-filled life does. A spirit-filled life does. It sings and thanks God in every aspect. Now, stop and think of this for a minute. If this is what Paul is directing us by the Holy Ghost and instructing us that here's what a spirit-filled life is supposed to be, and let's assume that, uh, take for granted, that God wants us to be seen by the world as living a spirit-filled life, then what should the church look like? Well, the exact opposite of what it looks like now. It should look like a people who magnify God and not the problems around them. Who magnify God instead of complaining about what everybody else in the world is complaining about. In other words, somebody that has always got on their lips in some form or another that God is the answer. What do you think that would do to the world if the church started living like that? Would it make a distinction between us and the unsaved? That's one thing for sure. And it would draw attention to God. The third characteristic he mentions is in verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Now submission is an attitude. Submission is not action. It's not obedience. It's an attitude. An attitude of submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Now this is going to become more important in chapter 6. And you've got to remember that Paul didn't write in chapters and verse. The translators divided this into chapters and verse for easy reference and, and uh, for our sakes as far as study is concerned. But he's talking about different areas that living a spirit-filled life will impact, will influence in your life. The first thing he says is it'll make us better husbands and wives. Why? Because we won't be complaining about our husbands and wives so much. We'll be magnifying God in everything that we do. That would change a marriage. We get your attention off of each other and on to God. And he says this is a matter of your Christian obligation to the Lord. 
In other words, he's saying living a spirit-filled life should change the way you live. And he starts in the home, starts in the marriage first. And then in chapter 6, he continues the same thought. And here's the next area he talks about a spirit-filled life having an influence. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking with, when it comes to parents and children relationship, two different things. Now, realize that he knows that the children are not reading the letter. He's not writing this. Children, young children, obey your parents. That's not what he's writing. He's writing to the church an overall view of the church. Here's what Christian children should look like. They should be obedient to their parents. Now, but Pastor Mike, isn't that part of the law? Yeah, it is part of the law. It's part of the law of Moses, and he makes mention of it as having a, the first commandment of all the laws given of Moses, 430 laws. This is the first one that's made mention of having a specific promise that results from obedience. Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Now, notice verse 2. He says, honor your father and mother. Obedience and honoring are two different things. Honoring is the action, or I'm sorry, the attitude of submission. Now, Paul does not contemplate a parent telling someone, telling their children to do some ungodly thing. He does not contemplate that because he's going to talk to the parents next. So he's saying that children should obey their parents. Why should children obey their parents? Well, children should obey their parents because they don't have knowledge of right and wrong for themselves. We know clearly then that he's talking about young children. He's not writing to young children. He's writing to parents so that they'll know how to raise their children. Children should be subject to obedience to their parents. But we should teach them in the right way, and he'll cover that in the next few verses. We as parents should teach our children in the right way so that they have an honoring attitude long past the point where they're under our obligation to obey. Honor your father and mother. He's talking about attitude. Now, when you start growing up and you get out on your own, you have your own family, it would be ridiculous, for example, for me to obey my mom where it comes to family matters concerning my family. She didn't know what's going on with my family. She might think she knows best, but it's, it's not my obligation to obey everything that she says anymore because I'm an adult and I'm responsible for myself. But I never outlive the obligation to honor her. Ever. And that's where the promise is. It's the first commandment with promise. And what is that promise? That it may be well with you. This word well is the word translated prosper in Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt uh, meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. In other words, it's saying... Here's the key, parents. Here's the key to setting a financial foundation for your children, a success, a, fa- a foundation of success for your children. Teach them for- correctly. Well, how do we teach them? Well, look at verse 4. And you fathers, the word fathers is the word parents. It's not the word fathers. You parents. And you parents. Provoke not your children to wrath. Philip's translation says don't overcorrect your children. Don't overcorrect your children. How many of you as parents find out that you have to pick your battles with kids? 
You can't fix everything. In other words, don't try to fix something without teaching them why. Now, you can't do that when they're, you know, real young. But you should start making that a practice as they begin to get older and can understand for themselves. Parents, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The word nurture means loving example of truth. Loving example of truth. Loving example of truth. In other words, live the word in front of your kids. If you take your kids to church and tell them that you want them to learn what we're teaching them here, but you don't live it for yourself, forget your kids following the church's example. They'll follow yours. Join us for our Christmas Eve candlelight service with Pastor Mike Webb. Christmas is a special time here at Foothill Family Church. I want to especially invite you to our Christmas Eve candlelight service. We have a chance to celebrate when Jesus came to the earth to be our Savior. Come join us this Christmas Eve. Again, that's the Christmas Eve candlelight service at 6 p.m. December 24th at Foothill Family Church. For more information, go to www.mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Here's how to prevent overcorrecting your children. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The example, the loving example of living the Word in front of them. Well, you can see why he started with husbands and wives first then. Because he's trying to establish that example. As the result of the Holy Spirit influence in and upon your life. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now he's going to change subjects. Talking about servants and masters. I'm going to read down through verse 9 at all uh, at one shot. And then we'll make some comments about them. Servants be obedient to them that are your masters. Now the word servants is the word slave. Now a lot of people are going to take this and say. Well this is talking about employers and employees and so forth. And there are some principles that you can apply there. But this is not talking about employers and employees. It's talking about slaves and slave owners. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. Notice he identifies that if a slave is owned as property, the person that owns them, their master, is only their master according to the flesh, not their spirit, the real them. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as under Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters, slave owners, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, you have one too, your master also is in heaven, Neither is their respective persons with him. Now, as I said, there are some principles here that you can apply to, to employers and employees. Certainly, we all have a tendency to work harder when we think the boss is looking. And this is one thing that he's talking about. But imagine what it would be for a slave. What incentive other than physical punishment would a slave have for doing a good job for his owner? And that's hard for us to relate. 
We've heard stories, and we've got some slavery in, the, in our history, and a lot of people are trying to fix that. And a lot of people will take these verses of Scripture and say, well, see, the Bible even supports slavery. Why should we pay attention to a book that's so outdated as to do that? Well, there's a couple of points that we need to consider with that. Number one, most of the people I've found trying to do that are looking for justification for disobeying God's word anyway. I've never heard anybody that was honest use that as a legitimate example for disobeying God's word. But let's talk about the issue of slavery for a minute. Why does the Bible not refer to freeing of slaves? Well, we've got some other letters. This is not a standalone letter. We've got some other letters, specifically one letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison in his last imprisonment, not this one, where he, kinda, where he had a hired house and was able to come and go for a two-year period of time. But his last imprisonment, when he was on death row just before he was executed, he wrote to Philemon. And Philemon was a slave owner. And Paul writes to Philemon and says, Onesimus, who is your runaway slave, got saved while he was away from you. He got saved under my ministry, Paul says. And he said, he's been very helpful to me, and I even wanted to keep him, but that wouldn't be right because according to the laws of the land, he still belongs to you. And that would do you a disservice and cost you, and I don't want to be responsible for costing you. But then Paul adds, but we won't talk about what you owe me. But then Paul says, and it shows his attitude as impressed and influenced by the Holy Ghost, inspired by the Holy Ghost. He said, I would, just, I would much prefer to keep him because he's been a help to me in my imprisonment. Now, the prison, the last prison Paul was in was a terrible and disgusting place. And you can't think of prison cells like we have today and relate to the Bible example. Because where Paul was, like I said, there's no sentence of, you know, a number of years or months or whatever, and then they let you go. When you get into a place that they put Paul, which was literally a hole in the ground attached to the sewer system of the city, when you get put there, it's just a matter of when do they decide to execute you. And so as a result, they're not trying to keep these people alive. They're not feeding them. They're not clothing them. You're not, they're not being protected from the elements. This is just an open hole in the ground that's constructed in such a way that they can't get out. So they're open to the elements. And there's historical records that in this very prison that Paul was kept in, this hole in the ground that Paul was kept in, that during the rainy season, it would back up with sewage. And Paul writes to Timothy, this second letter, last letter he writes to Timothy, he talks about how cold he is. He says, bring the coat. Bring me a coat. Well, why didn't the prison provide him a coat? Because they're not trying to keep him alive. If he dies on his own, then that's just one less execution that they have to perform. Well, Paul, in writing to Philemon, talks about Onesiphorus. I'm sorry, uh, Onesimus. There's two of them, two guys that are spoken of that I get confused. Onesiphorus and Onesimus. Say that five times real fast. <laughs> but Onesimus got saved. I don't know how that would happen, but got saved as he was a runaway slave. Maybe it was before Paul was put in prison, and he had such respect for Paul that he stuck around. But when Paul finds out what the case is, finds out you're, he's a, a slave, a runaway slave from somebody that Paul knows personally, then Paul sends him back to his master. 
Now, put yourself in, in the position of both men. If you were the runaway slave that was being sent back to slavery, how would you like that? I can't think of but one reason why I'd put up with that if it was me, and that is because I'd been convinced by Paul that it was the will of God. Now, how in the world could slavery ever be the will of God? Because God's not a lawbreaker. God's not a lawbreaker. And that's why Paul gives instruction to the masters, Christian masters. Now, on the other end, Philemon, knowing that Onesimus is on the way back, or really the letter is delivered to him when he returns, knowing that he's come back, he reads this letter. I'm sure his first inclination is, I've got to punish this guy for running away and teach the other slaves an example and, and make an example of him and so forth. But Paul talks about how that Paul would prefer to have kept him because he was providing aid and comfort to him while he was in prison in this hole in the ground. But then Paul says something that's very instructive. He said, but I can't do it in a manner that takes him from you. It has to be something that you do willingly. So what is Paul doing? Paul is, is revealing the attitude that he has living a spirit-filled life, controlled and directed by the Holy Ghost and certainly inspired by the Holy Ghost to write to Philemon. He's saying, if I know the will of God, God would have you release this guy. But it has to be your choice, not mine. Now, why does the Bible not come out and speak against slavery? Please understand, folks, that slavery cannot exist where the gospel has taken root. It just can't. Well, then why didn't the Bible condemn slavery? Because Christianity was, cons- was considered and rumored among all throughout the Roman Empire, which was pretty much from one end of the world to the other at that point in time. It was supposed and suspicioned that the whole purpose of Christianity was to subvert the Roman society. And if Paul had said by the Holy Ghost, all you slave owners need to free your slaves, then that would have played right into the hands of what many who are the enemies of Christianity were saying anyway about try, about it, Christianity, trying to destroy the, the fabric of society. So what does God do? God always leaves it up to man to choose to do right. Does the Bible support slavery? No. It supports obeying the laws of the land as long as you can. And what happens when you can't? Well, we've got examples of that in the book of Acts where the apostles were commanded not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. What'd they do? They said, well, now they said to the people that were commanding them not to preach in Jesus' name, they said, whether it's right in your sight for us to obey you or God, you're going to have to decide. We are we can only do what God told us to do. That's what should be called and is called civil disobedience. In what regard? when it becomes impossible to keep the laws of God and the laws of men. So Paul is not talking to slave owners about anything other than following what God puts in your heart. Well, what would God put in your heart if you're living a spirit-filled life, providing freedom for your slaves? Now, does that mean turning everybody loose? That might or might not be the best case. But what is he saying? He's saying to the slave owners, the masters, he's saying just as you have an obligation to them because they're legally a part of your household, 
you have a greater Christian obligation to make them part of your family. So he's telling them to care for them, just like their master, Jesus, in heaven cares for them. Now, here's something that we don't consider, but it's, it, we have historical records and historical evidence of this being the case. I don't know how often or how common it was, but you might have a slave that was used by the Holy Ghost as a leader in a church whose master, slave owner, might be part of that church. So what should be done there? Well, the slave owner, even though he owns the, the, the slave as his property, submits, living a spirit-filled life, submitting yourselves one to another, submits to the gift of God that's on the slave. So at church, the slave is the master of the congregation or whatever the case might be that God's using. But at home, in everyday life, he goes back to submitting to his master with singleness of heart as unto the Lord. Things were pretty confusing back then sometimes. So what's the rule? What's the principle? Let the love of God dominate whatever you do. Let the love of God dominate you as you're working for somebody, as you're working for your, your master. That certainly applies on the job today. And if you're the employer or the boss, let the love of God dominate how you treat your employees. Wouldn't it make sense that following the direction of the Holy Ghost would cause you to, to walk in love? Well, that's where Paul started in chapter 4, walk in love in everything. Now it brings us to chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul's been saving what might be called the best for last. Finally, my brethren. Finally, my brethren. Finally, my brethren. Now let me ask you a question. Seeing the construction of these letters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, talking about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, our position in Christ because of the sacrifice that he's made and the work of God through the Holy Ghost in us today. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, talking about how we live out our Christian life before the world. Exercising authority, utilizing the resurrection power of the Lord, and so forth. Do you think Paul had some kind of outline in his mind, or in his thinking at least, in what he wanted, or what he knew that the Holy Ghost wanted him to write to the churches? Well, he would have had to. This couldn't have been accidental. So when Paul says in chapter 6, verse 10, finally, my brethren, how can it mean anything other than this is the final point that I've been saving till last? In some ways, we could say this is the most important point of the Bible, or of this letter. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Now, how in the world could that be more important than living a spirit-filled life. The Bible tells us that one way to defeat the enemy is to put on the whole armor of God. That means to take the blessings of salvation that Jesus accomplished for us and apply each and every part of that to our lives. Take the shield of faith and quench every fiery dart of the wicked one. Thanks for watching today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church.
This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. And only way you're going to experience what Jesus has already purchased and accomplished for you in your life, in other words, beyond the page of the book, but make it real in your life, is to change your thinking. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.